God is God. He said, I create the darkness and I made the light. He said, I give life and I cause death. I build up and I tear down. He is the God of all things, the good and the bad. It's easy to believe he is the God of the hills. We all like to be on the mountaintop. We all like to feel victorious and successful. But in the dark days, in the troubled times, we struggle to believe that God is the God even of our darkness. Very often what we do in our dark days is we shut down and we quiet ourselves and we just wait for the darkness to pass because we don't believe that God is present in our darkness. The perplexing thing about it is that very often God is the cause of our darkness. Did you hear what I just said? Very often, God is the cause of our darkness. Sometimes God turns out the lights. When we become too familiar, when we become too complacent with God, when we have learned a lot of Bible verses and we think that we have arrived, sometimes God just shuts out the lights to remind us. (laughs) And we don't know what we thought we knew. And in the darkness, he breaks us and he humbles us again. I believe it's David who said, God, why do you hide yourself from me? Why do you turn out the lights like this? I was walking along with you and everything was going well. I was on the top of the mountain. And all of a sudden, you cut out the lights and I can't see you anymore. And God is saying, I am the God of the hills and the valleys. Trusting me on the hill is... Somewhat simple. Trusting me in the valley, that's where the growth occurs. In the difficult times. In the dark days. As we grow in Jesus Christ, we come to appreciate the days of darkness. I'll say it for myself anyway. Sometimes we come to appreciate the days of darkness more than we appreciate the days of the light. That's my own experience. Because it's in my days of darkness where I begin to grope after God in desperation. (laughs) When my faith is renewed and rekindled is most often in the darkness. What about you? In my troubled days, it seems to be when I hunger and thirst after God more than anything else. And in my good days, on my mountaintop experiences tend to be the time that I stop praying like I should. Nobody has to tell me to pray when I'm in trouble. (laughs) Nobody has to tell me to pray when I get desperate. Nobody has to give me any advice about reading my Bible in the morning. I'll read it morning, noon, and night. I'm looking for an escape from my problem. But then in the good days, I become complacent. I become lackadaisical. I become too familiar. He's the God of the hills and the valleys, and the valley has a purpose. The darkness that you may be experiencing right now has a purpose for your life. Last week, last week we walked with Paul the Apostle as he was transparent in discussing the profound facets of our existence, the two extremes between life and death. 
Paul recognized that there was value both on the hill and in the valley. He recognized that there was possibility and potential in his life as well as in his death. That's very interesting. He said that to live is to labor for Christ. That's a good thing. To be alive is to work for Jesus, and I love that. But to die is to see Jesus face to face, and I love that even more. To live or to die, they both are goods for the believer. Both of these states have value for us. Neither is to be feared, neither is to be degraded in our minds, neither life nor death. And so from this neutral perspective, Paul was able to make a choice based on, based not so much on his own wants and desires, not based on his own needs, but based solely upon how his life could be pleasing to God and how he could serve the people of God. He wasn't concerned or worried about himself. He was only concerned about the glory of God. Will God get more glory out of my life or out of my death? And Paul chose to live. He said, I'm, I want to keep on living because my living is necessary for you, Philippians. It is necessary for you that I remain. Paul made his choice. But that was just Paul's choice. If Paul had his rathers, he would remain just a little while longer. That was his choice. But ultimately, Paul, Paul knows, Paul understands the final decision rests with God. He has his preferences, but he realizes that his final, the final decision rests with God alone. And he puts the ball back into God's court in verse 27 and says this, whatever happens, whatever happens, whatever God chooses to do, whether God chooses to take me now or let me remain for your stakes, whatever happens to me. I remember as a young man getting the news that one of my favorite preachers, one, a very prominent preacher at the time, had been caught up in a scandal. It was the kind of sin and the kind of scandal that would make your stomach turn. And he was one of my favorite preachers. I remember undergoing such a crisis of faith, disillusioned and dejected, struggling to make sense of his downfall. How could such a man of God live such a double life? How is that even possible? How could someone so gifted, so powerful, fall so swiftly? And I became dismayed. I would even call it depressed. And I thought to myself, if this man of God can fall like that, then I don't stand a chance. Maybe I should give up on the faith altogether because apparently it lacks power. I was disillusioned. That's what I thought. I had placed too much confidence in men and a large part of my faith was tied to their remaining faithful. And when he fell, it felt like I had fallen. I had so closely aligned myself with him and his teachings. 
So much so to the point I had internalized his character. I had internalized his fake lifestyle instead of being filled with the life of Christ. So to a large degree, I was depending on men and not depending on God. Where am I going with this? Well, last week, I asked you guys to make yourself necessary in the lives of others. Who remembers that? I asked you to make yourselves necessary to other people. And what I mean by this, that each of us should be mindful to love and to serve others the very best we can to the glory of God, to offer ourselves and our lives in service to others. I meant that we should add spiritual value to the lives of others. And in this way, we make ourselves useful. We make ourselves necessary to man, necessary to the movement of God. From my perspective, I should be conscious of the fact that I am indeed pouring out my life for others. And in that sense, I make myself necessary. I make myself necessary, but not indispensable. I make myself necessary, but not irreplaceable. These qualities belong to God alone. Only God is unique. Only God is indispensable. So while Paul the Apostle recognizes his work to the Philippians as being very fruitful and very necessary, Paul also knows that God can raise up someone else to continue the work he's doing. It doesn't have to be Paul. Paul is not indispensable. The kingdom work is indispensable. The preaching, the serving, the blessing of others, these things are indispensable. This work should and does continue long after every laborer has left the field. Long after I'm gone, God will continue to do his work in the world. I am not indispensable, though I may be necessary. So Paul advises these Philippians that no matter what happens to me, whatever happens to me, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. No matter whether I come again or not, whatever happens to me, conduct yourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct yourselves in a manner that communicates the gospel of Jesus Christ in every way. Let your life, let your lifestyle be a letter from God to every man, every woman, boy and girl. Let your life and your lifestyle speak well of the gospel. When I was growing up, people could tell I was Maddie Robinson's son. Mom always taught us to be very respectful, to be polite, to use our very best manners when talking to our elders. People say, you're Maddie's boy, aren't you? Yeah, I'm Maddie's boy. You speak well of Maddie. You speak well of your mother. Paul is saying, let your lifestyle speak well of Jesus Christ. When people see you, let them say, Jesus, you're doing a wonderful job. Live a life that is worthy of the gospel. What does that look like? What does it look like to conduct myself in a manner that is worthy of the gospel? Well, first, first Paul says that to live a life that complements the gospel of Jesus Christ, we should live with certainty. Look at what he says in verse 27. 
Whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, that you are certain, that you are steadfast, that you are unmovable, that you remain certain about the revelation of God in Jesus Christ, that you will not waver from the faith, that you'll add nothing to this gospel, that you'll take nothing away from the gospel, that you will stand firm in one spirit, that you will be certain about what it is that you believe. God says in the book of Revelation, I would rather you be hot or cold. If you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. Paul is saying, be hot for Jesus. Don't be lukewarm. Don't be in the middle. Don't be in today and out tomorrow. But stand firm. One spirit, knowing what you believe. <laughs> Whether I come and see you or not, stand firm. We live in an age of uncertainty, don't we? We're living during a time when everything is to be questioned and even truth has lost its mooring. We live in an era of a lack of commitment on every level. Lack of commitment is to be praised and settling on anything, recognizing anything as being definitive is looked down upon. No commitment. I lived in California for a couple years when I was in the military. I was always struck at how difficult it was to throw an event, a party, or anything in California. My friend was putting on a party and he got all these invitations together for about 50 people and he was gonna mail them. I said, you know, you should, you should RSVP to find out how many people are coming so you can almost food to prepare. And he laughed and said, man, this is California. You don't ask people to commit. Are you coming to the party? I don't know, I'll see about it. You're gonna be there at seven o'clock? Maybe, I might get there. Because there's so much going on in California, nobody really likes to commit too much. I may be at the beach, I may be hanging out, I may be doing, uh, just give me the invitation, I'll come if I can. Nobody likes to commit, I find, I find that very humorous. People didn't commit too much. The city offered so many good options that no one wanted to be tied down to just one thing. I am amazed at how this culture of uncertainty has taken over America. <laughs> no one really wants to commit to anything. I'm a man or I'm a woman or I'm in between or I love this, I like that, I like that. I got so many options. I don't want to choose just one thing. I want to be everything. Strange time we're living in. Days of uncertainty. But Paul says that we honor the gospel of Jesus Christ when we remain committed to one way, the way of the cross. Stand firm in the one spirit. To live a life that honors the gospel also means to live as one people. Look at what he says, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Striving together, working together. To work together as one signifies that we all share the same intent. We all share the same goals and values. Strive together as one for the faith. 
It means that our only intention is to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ in the world and nothing else. Not to build a movement, not to build an agenda, not even to build a church, but to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ in the world. Stand together in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith. That's the mission. Paul says that if we want to honor the gospel of Jesus Christ, all of us collectively will commit ourselves to this single aim, to advance the gospel through our every word, through our every deed. It's all about Jesus. We are to be committed. We are to be singularly focused on promoting the gospel. Stand firm. Work together for the faith. But in order to walk worthy of this gospel, Paul also says that we are to be courageous. I like this one. Be courageous. We don't talk much about courage in church. I was talking, I was talking to somebody on this week, side note, about men in the church. And how very often when men join the church, they just seem like they, be, they become emasculated. They, they seem to lose their masculinity. They just become kind of passive about everything. And I was kind of complaining about it, actually. A man should have a certain amount of courageousness. Just because we're Christians doesn't mean that we're weak or soft or passive. We don't have to be passive. We're men. Sometimes strength is necessary. They call it toxic masculinity. But I tell you what, I am certain that the people over there in Ukraine would rather have Zelensky right now <laughs> than to have a, 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 an emotionally, a, a man who's in touch with his emotions and passive. I'm sure they appreciate having Zelensky right now. Someone who can be courageous, someone who can move things forward sometimes needs to be done. Paul says be courageous without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Be courageous. Even in the face of opposition, be courageous. Don't be scared, Paul says. Don't be afraid to be marginalized or canceled by the culture. Don't be afraid to be fired from your job for saying what you believe. Don't be afraid of being publicly shamed or rejected by men. Don't be afraid. Don't even be afraid of being imprisoned for your faith. If your sole purpose for speaking up is to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and if you're not operating under any ulterior motives, then do not be afraid, Paul says. The world is full of bullies. Bullies in the workplace, bullies in the court, bullies on the police force, bullies in politics, and there are even bullies in the church. The world is full of people who would make you afraid. And this is why we have to make sure that our motives for engaging this world, our motives are pure. Our motives are directed only toward giving life. If the church tries to bully the world into living a certain kind of way, if we try to bully the world through worldly means to change their ways, then we should be afraid. We should be very afraid. Jesus declares this. 
Those who live by the sword will die by the sword, even believers. Even believers who take up this world's weapons of war to annihilate our opposition, we should be afraid. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. But the Bible says that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Jesus Christ. That's the weapon of our warfare. Prayer is our weapon. Fasting is our weapon. Consecration is our weapon against the world. To the devil, we are to be viewed as an imminent threat. The devil should be afraid of us. The devil should be concerned when we start praying. Our enemy, our spiritual enemy should be concerned when we start praying. He should be afraid of us. We should appear as a threat to him. But men in the world should see us as sheep. Totally non-threatening. Totally (laughs) non-aggressive. That's how we should be viewed by men in the world as sheep. Because this is how we speak well of the gospel, by conducting ourselves as Jesus did when he was in the world. Jesus Christ was antagonistic against the adversary, but Jesus was a friend to unbelievers. (laughs) Jesus was going after the big fish, in other words, the spiritual wickedness in high places. Jesus was going after the big fish. You go down to the county jail this morning or any morning and you go and see the prisoners in jail, you will find all of the low-ranking drug dealers in jail. He got caught with an ounce of drugs. He got caught with a half ounce of drugs. He got caught with a pound of drugs. You know who you're not going to see in the Cook County Jail? The multimillionaires who run the entire operation. You'll never see them in jail. You only see the small people in jail, never the big fish. Not often the big fish. So it is with the church. Sometimes the church, we spend so much of our time chasing particular sinners and particular sins, we're not chasing the big fish, the adversary, the real problem, the root cause of the problems in the world. We're not chasing him, we're chasing men. And if that's us, then we should be very afraid. Because if we are using this world's weapons to fight against sin in the world, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. What we end up doing sometimes is we use the world's mechanisms to reel in sin, and we make ourselves an adversary to people. We make ourselves fair game, fair game. Because we're using a worldly sword to deal with a spiritual problem. Hmm. And the problem is that heaven does not advocate and heaven does not recognize that kind of worldly aggression as a proper means for defending the faith of Jesus Christ. Heaven does not recognize that and heaven will not defend it. But the believer who fights against actual darkness 
actual spiritual wickedness in high places. The believer who seeks to convince sinners through moral suasion instead of worldly coercion. This person does not need to be afraid because she is doing the work of Jesus Christ the way that he prescribed the work to be done. And she will be spiritually sustained and she will be spiritually comfort, comforted no matter the opposition. And her fearlessness in the face of opposition, Paul says, will be a sign to them that they will be destroyed. It's bad news. Her, her courage, her courage to them signifies that they will not win. The believer's demonstration of courage and confidence in the face of worldly opposition makes a statement. It says to the world, you will lose. You come against me like David said. You come against me with sword and with spear. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts and you will lose. That's what the believer's courage communicates to those who oppose him. And this same courage reminds the believer that he will be saved. I am confident I have nothing to fear, neither life nor death, because I will be saved. That's what Paul says. Don't worry about suffering. You'll be saved. You are eternally secure. And because of that blessed assurance, the believer should not be put off by suffering. Paul says this in verse 29. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Paul says that faith is a gift from God. It has been granted to you to believe on Jesus Christ. Faith is a gift that has been granted. But Paul says God has granted us another gift <laughs> that doesn't seem like a gift at all. God has granted us the gift of suffering. Did you know that suffering was a gift? God has granted you the gift of suffering. Suffering then is one of the finer things of the kingdom of God. Jesus did many things in his life in the world. Jesus healed the sick. Jesus preached. Jesus trained his disciples to baptize. Jesus was generous. He fed the 5,000. Jesus did a lot of things in his earthly ministry. But do you know what's the one thing that Jesus did more than anything else while he was here in the world? Jesus suffered. Jesus suffered. From the time he was a baby, when they sought to kill him in the, in, in, in the, in the crib, Jesus suffered. His whole life was a life of suffering. He did that more than he did anything else. And Jesus suffered in a variety of ways. Jesus was despised and rejected. Jesus was ridiculed and mocked. Jesus for a season had no place to lay his head. He was lied on, he was verbally abused. Jesus was slapped. Jesus was spat on. Jesus was wrongfully imprisoned. He was physically assaulted 
Jesus hung on a cross until he was dead. Jesus lived a life of suffering. His suffering and his death were painful. But look at what he accomplished for the world. Look at what he accomplished for each of us. Suffering is one of the finer things of the kingdom of God. But what is it about suffering that makes suffering so useful? What is it about suffering that makes suffering so beneficial? I'll just give you a couple ideas here. Suffering, first of all, opens us to spiritually, spiritual insights we may not have been aware of. Suffering opens us up to spiritual insight that we may not have been aware of. In Job chapter 42, after Job has been brought very low, lost his children, lost his house, lost his land, lost his cattle, almost lost his wife, and almost even lost his life, he's been brought very low. And after God had rebuked him for three chapters before chapter 42, God just spends three chapters rebuking him for his bad attitude because Job didn't recognize the value of suffering. You all know all the scripture where God just confronts, you've read that, right, in the book of Job, where God just confronts him and says, stand up like a man and I, I want to talk to you. I love the way he does that. Job, I've listened to you for the last 35 chapters. Stand up like a man. Let me talk to you. Let me ask you some questions. Where were you when I hung the stars in the sky? Where were you when I made the moon and the sun? Where were you? Job is suffering and God is talking like, no, I'm not concerned about that right now. You're disrespectful. I'm going to get you straight. And he's, but I got boils. I lost all my kids. God, oh, no, no, no. Don't complain to me. Where were you? <laughs> he comes very strong at Job for a reason because he wants to open Job's understanding to the bigger picture. After God just finished rebuking him, setting the record straight, finally Job speaks, and this is what Job says. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no plan is impossible for you. Who is this who conceals advice without knowledge? Therefore, I have that which I do not. I've been complaining for 35 chapters. Now I'm willing to admit it. I have been speaking on things I don't even understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not even know. Suffering opens us up to deeper spiritual insight. His suffering caused him to gain a new understanding and a greater appreciation for the power of God and for the love of God. Things he said that before he was not even aware of. That's what suffering does. Suffering sends you looking and scrambling in the darkness, looking and scrambling for answers in the dark days of life. And very often, instead of finding the answer to my questions, suffering causes me to find God and to dig deeper into God. Hmm. We come to appreciate God more and more the more we suffer. That's just the way it is. We come to realize more and more that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. Not in our strength. 
God's strength is made perfect in our valley days, not in our mountaintop days. His strength is made perfect when I am weak. It took me years to learn this lesson, years to learn this lesson. I thought that God wanted a star quarterback. <laughs> I thought that God wanted an athletic believer, somebody who could shake and jive and move and get it done for him and do all the big stuff and I'm strong and I can do anything. No, that's not what he even wants. Now, in my older age, in the morning I get up and I sit on the side of my bed and I close my eyes for about 15 minutes and I sit there and just confess that I am nothing without you. I can't accomplish anything. I have no idea what I'm doing. I just confess it before the day gets started and it's proven to me by my life. I don't need my life to prove it to me. I already know it. Let me just get up in the morning confessing. <laughs> I am speaking of things I do not understand. Let me just sit myself down and confess that I am weak. This is, not a, this is not a lesson about avoiding suffering. I'm not, I'm not trying to train anybody how to avoid suffering, but I do want to give you a little tip. If you want to suffer less, if you want God to stop having to break you down to prove to you that you are really, really weak, confess it before he does it. That's a secret. That's a little secret. Confess your brokenness before he breaks you. Confess your weakness before he disempowers you, because he will. He will. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you in due time. Humble yourself. Stay real low. No matter how successful you are, no matter how accomplished you might be, stay low. Because in the kingdom of God, if you start sprouting your head up too much, you'll get it chopped off. God will prune you. God prunes his people. When we start getting too confident, too cocky, too arrogant, <laughs> when we start thinking we know everything there is to know and we can do anything, God says, no, you, 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 need, a, you need a dose of humility. Paul the apostle says, I knew a man, whether in the flesh or out of the flesh, I don't know, but I knew a man who was taken up into the third heaven I don't know how many heavens there are, but apparently there are at least three. I, he was taken up into the third heaven, Paul says, and he saw things that is not even lawful to speak. Imagine that that were you. We're in a dream in the middle of the night. Jesus came and got you and took you for a walk in the third heaven and allowed you to see the beautiful gold buildings and the streets paved with gold and the gates of pearl and onyx and you could see it all. And then he brought you back to your bed and said, good night. How would you feel the next morning? You would feel like you know more than everybody in the world. I have seen glory. I've been there. I've walked with Jesus. I've talked with Jesus. I'm the man. I know what I'm talking about. You should follow me because I saw it. I know. Paul says, after taking me up into the third heaven, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh. A messenger of Satan. Look, God took him up, let him see the third heaven, and as, as soon as he brought him back to the earth, God sent Satan. A messenger of Satan to buffet me so that I will not be lifted up above measure. 
so that I won't become cocky and arrogant. He stuck me in the side. <laughs> yeah. As you walk this walk long enough, you begin to realize every time I start, every time, when I have a great sermon, when I preach and everybody, everybody's eyes is lit up, lit up and everything, and everybody, that was a great sermon, Pastor. That was a great sermon. Do you know what I do when I get home? I go in my office and close my door and sit there and remind myself of all of my faults and frailties. Just to make sure God knows, I know where I am on the totem pole here. You don't have to prove it. I know what they were saying. I'm forgetting that already. I know where I stand. Yeah, you don't have to come for me. Practice that. You may find that you'll start suffering much less. You'll start going through much less turmoil and trouble in your life. When you just break yourself and not make God have to come and break you. That's one of those secrets. I'm not saying to avoid suffering now. I'm just saying that if you want less suffering, you can try that. Suffering humbles us. Continuing in Job chapter 42, look at what Job says, what he further declares here. In verse 4, chapter 42 of Job, he says to God, please listen and I will speak. That sounds so humble, doesn't it? You go back and read the whole book of Job, and Job says some stuff to God that was kind of really on the edge. I'm like, Job, you're going to get yourself in trouble, man. You're really upset. You're really talking crazy. <laughs> After God gets finished putting things in order, he says, please listen, and I will speak. <laughs> Instead of continuing to blurt out indistinguishable jabber, complaining, Painting my witness because of my pain and suffering, Job has become so humble, so broken, that he asked permission to speak. You've been talking all this time, why aren't you talking now? I got the lesson. Please listen, let me speak. He's come to a new respect and a new appreciation for the power of God. Through suffering, Job has found his place under God. Now, I know that in this room, most of us are believers. Maybe all of us are believers. And this fact that I'm about to say pertains to us, hopefully, to a lesser degree than it does to unbelievers. But this observation is true. That there remains an aspect of every human being, whether saved or not saved, there remains an aspect of every human, an unhealthy desire to be God. Every one of us has somewhat of a God complex. Every one of us wants to be in control, like God is in control. Every one of us wants to be right. Every one of us to some degree wants to live our lives unopposed, with no obstacles, with nothing holding us back, with no limitations at all. All of us to some degree desire that. We want to be all powerful. We want to live our lives without limitation. All of us to some degree has a God complex. Job spent a number of chapters judging God. That's what he was doing. He was judging God. He was measuring God's actions. He was measuring God's responses, responses to his suffering. Mm. In his apparent insanity, 
There are a couple of verses in Job where he even seems to talk down about God. His suffering brought out the very worst in him. His suffering caused mindsets and attitudes that were buried deep within him. It caused those negative mindsets and attitudes to come to the surface. I'm sure Job learned things about himself even he didn't understand all through his suffering. If you listen to Job, it sounds like Job believed he knew everything there was to know about God, everything there was to know about the law of God. But now suffering has so humbled him, he says, I will ask, instead of me just talking so much, I will ask you, God, and you instruct me. He's broken, man. He's broken. <laughs> I've been talking a whole lot for these last 35 chapters, God. I'm, uh, look, look, I'll ask questions now, and you, you can instruct me. Thanks, Joe. Thank you, Joe. I'm finished drawing my own conclusions. I'm finished making wrong assumptions. I am all out of answers. Now all I have are questions. And I will wait for your instruction. Suffering has humbled him. He says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I retract. <laughs> this brother trying to get it right. Therefore, I retract and I repent. Sitting on dust and ashes, I take all I said before, I take it all back. I regret ever saying it. I had no idea what I was talking about. People hate to, to admit that. I'm just wrong. I had no idea what I was talking That's humility. I told you guys about the song before that goes, God is God and I am not. I can only see a part of the picture he's painting. God is God and I am man and I will never understand. Never understand it all because only God is God. That's what Job learned. But he also says something there that speaks to another benefit of suffering. He says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Suffering enhances our vision of Jesus Christ. Suffering enhances our vision of Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of the beautiful example in the book of Acts chapter seven, where Stephen has given one of the most fiery evangelistic sermons in the Bible, in my opinion. Stephen preached to the council. He preached the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. And after he finished preaching, the Bible says the council were infuriated. And they began gnashing their teeth at him. He's under pressure. He's suffering and he's about to suffer a whole lot more. But Stephen, the Bible says, being full of the Holy Spirit, Instead of looking at his problem, instead of looking at his suffering, Stephen looked intently into heaven 
and he saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his impending death. They're about to kill him. In a couple of verses later, he'll be dead. In the midst of his suffering, he gets a vision of Jesus Christ. Suffering helps us to get a better vision of Jesus Christ. What keeps us from being able to see Jesus? We know that he's invisible, but what is it that keeps us from seeing Jesus? You know what keeps us from seeing Jesus? Our flesh. Our own flesh keeps us blinded from having a clear view of Jesus Christ. Suffering comes along and begins to burn away the flesh, begins to wash the lens of my spiritual eyes. And by suffering, I come to see him better than I did before. Think about it in your own life. Every time you suffered, when you come out on the other side, you understand Jesus better than you did before if you go through faithfully. Now, if you go through complaining and kicking and screaming, maybe you don't. But if you go through faithfully, you come out the other side knowing Jesus better than you did before. Suffering enhances our vision of Jesus Christ. It was in Stephen's suffering and because of Stephen's suffering that he was able to see Jesus more clearly. Because of their hatred toward him, because of their determination to abuse and to kill him, God gave Stephen a vision, a vision that would encourage him, a vision that would comfort him in the midst of his struggle. Then finally, one of the most advantageous things about suffering is that suffering sanctifies us. Suffering sanctifies us. And by this, I simply mean that suffering causes us to love and to desire the things of this world less and less and to value the things of the kingdom of God more and more. The more we suffer, the more we learn how to disengage and to disidentify with the things of this world and the more we learn to depend on things that are eternal. Suffering sanctifies us. There are some habits, I'll call it what it is, there are some sins that we seem to not be able to get control of. Maybe I have a bad temper. Maybe I have a rage. Maybe I'm jealous and things like this. God sends suffering into my life to purify me. And what happens when I begin to suffer, when I'm in the oven of my suffering, those negative bad things begin to rise to the top, to the surface. And I begin to recognize aspects of myself that I was not aware of. How many of you know that for the most part, you are blind to your own sin and you are blind to your own flaws? Most of us in this room right now would say, I'm doing okay. How's your spiritual life? I'm doing okay. I'm making it. And as a pastor, I often just smile within when I hear people say that. I'm doing okay. Okay, all right, yeah, okay, whatever. We don't know ourselves. 
We think we're doing okay. When suffering comes, all of a sudden, we begin to recognize things about ourselves that we had not noticed before. That's the purpose of suffering, to help you to become realistic about where you actually are in the kingdom. And that itself should humble you. <laughs> suffering is one of the finer things of the kingdom of God, and people who do it well tend to grow in the spirit by leaps and bounds. When we learn how to accept suffering, and not just accept it, but to be glad for our suffering. When we learn to recognize that the only reason our enemy comes against us as hard as he does is because God has invested so much in us. <laughs> we begin to recognize suffering then as a blessing, as a benefit, as one of the finer things. And if you need proof of it, look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ. It was through his suffering that he raised physically and bodily from the dead, through his suffering. And if suffering was good enough for Jesus, suffering is good enough for me. Let's pray. Father God, we confess this morning that there are many things about your kingdom about your ways and about your work that we simply do not understand. So many mysteries, so many paradoxes. Sometimes we become confused in the midst of our suffering. Sometimes we feel like you have abandoned us in the midst of our suffering. I pray for us today, Father God, that you will cause us to begin to recognize and to appreciate suffering for what it really is an opportunity for us to draw closer to you. Help us to take advantage of every suffering. Help us to take spiritual advantage of every problem, every struggle that we have. Help us to wring them out for all of the spiritual value that we can receive from them. Help us to appreciate suffering as one of the finer things of your kingdom. And teach us how to embrace it without becoming fanatics, without becoming extremists, but teach us how to embrace our own suffering. How to use our suffering as a catalyst to draw closer and closer to you. We live for you. That our lives glorify you on the mountain and in the valley. In Jesus' name, amen.